This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship, and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. I was looking at some old photos the other day, and I realised that it's been nearly 15 years since Kylie and I moved to Hobart to live. It's amazing how time flies. And uh, so we moved in November 2005 to join a small group of Christians who were meeting in pubs and jazz venues and other social spaces in and around Hobart. And the group was called Third Place Communities, or TPC, uh, which eventually became uh, what we know as Together Church. And look, this is a picture of Kylie and I in 2003, before we moved to Tassie. Uh, So we sold our staff and we moved to Adelaide, from Adelaide to head to Cambodia as missionaries. And uh, we felt a call to reach the urban poor in the slums uh, overseas. And we joined a group, went to join a group called Interchange. Uh, And and so this is a photo of us in Phnom Penh. I don't have a projector at the back. I don't know why that is, but anyway, we'll keep turning. Uh, And this is a picture of us dancing at a birthday party in the slums of Phnom Penh. Uh, So it was 35 degrees and about 80% humidity at 12 o'clock at night. (laughs) So it was pretty hot and sweaty. Uh, You know, almost as as much of a scorcher as today. Um, And... uh, and so the, the team at Phnom Penh were, they were amazing and they were very generous. Uh, they welcomed us and they were full of faith. But over time and prayer and discernment, we realized that God had a different plan for Kai and I and it wasn't necessarily to end up in the slums of Cambodia. In fact, after months of praying and thinking and discerning, uh, we realized that God had broken our hearts uh, for the poor, but not necessarily the overseas poor. He'd broken our hearts for spiritually and poor people, broken people in our own home country uh, in Australia. And, and we had to go overseas in order to realize that God was calling us to be missionaries right here in this place. And so long story short, after 18 months of traveling in the UK and praying and thinking after that, we ended up moving as overseas missionaries to the wild and dangerous, isolated uh, shore of Tasmania. And, uh, and so... <laughs> Here's another pic uh, that, that, that does describe some of the backstory. So this is, a, a few of you know these guys, uh, Darren Altclass and, and Alan Hirsch, good friends of ours. And this was actually taken before we went overseas, but it forms part of the story which I want to share. And a few of us uh, went to a conference in Melbourne, and this is a long time ago. Uh, and, and we met Alan, Daz, and, and Kai and I had just been married at that time, and And these guys were running a conference to challenge the way we understood church in the Western world. And they they were challenging the inherited assumptions of what we call Christendom, which is the idea that church uh, is a religious activity that we do when we meet in a building, a religious building, uh, where there are paid priests who provide religious goods and services and, and conversations or sermons for essentially passive consumers of religion. And so they were really challenging us to to challenge and rethink about the inherited forms of church that we had received in the Western world and uh, and to see ourselves as missionaries in Australia to an increasingly secular society. This is a long time ago. It was pretty radical at the time. No one was talking about these things. And so when we were in Cambodia and we were praying and talking and thinking about where God was calling us to be as missionaries, uh, we, we kept returning to this vision 
of what if church could be different in the West and what if the Australian church could be seen as a mission field and not something we inherited from uh, an era that came from Europe, etc., etc. Which brings us back to Hobart. Uh, and so uh, Hobart at the time, you know, was, there was this group of people meeting in pubs and clubs. This is a picture of us dancing at Rectango. And, uh, and rather than meet in a religious building, we met in pubs, uh, we danced every Friday night, and we met in social spaces. Uh, we ran a jazz venue in 112 Liverpool Street, and that was kind of our church building. But it wasn't used very much for kind of religious gatherings. We ran a jazz club and had the local kind of people come and dance, and there were wedding, weddings, uh, they had parties, lots of parties, I remember. Uh, we also ran uh, seminars on spirituality where a whole lot of people would come, Christians, but a lot of non-Christians, and explore faith for the first time. It was really cutting edge, uh, and it was a great way to explore faith in a new way. So after a few phone calls with Darren, Kylie and I packed up, uh, we bought tickets and ended up moving to Hobart. So this is a picture of our very first Christmas here in Hobart, 2005. Uh, we rented a flat. <laughs> With, uh, with these uh, very dodgy blokes, the guy and the, um, the wife, Peter, you've got to kind of take care of. But, um, but uh, yeah, he's very rough looking, that guy. But no, this is Kai and I when we arrived in Hobart, very fresh as overseas missionaries. Um, and it's actually where we met Mick and Jules and Aja for the first time. Uh, so Aja's a little bit bigger now, but um, I'm sure we'll have to see her carried in her dad's arms like that. Uh, and and, um, and I, I remember a few years I remember the first few years in Hobart were, were really joyful and exciting because we were in a new place. But at the same time, they were really challenging and quite unsettling for us. And uh, it's interesting because Kylie and I had moved halfway across the world after really two and a half years of praying and discerning and reflecting on where we were meant to be. And we felt called to be here in Hobart. And we were super committed. We were ready to go. Uh, we were ready to get in and serve and understand and to find our place. And yet things didn't quite work out as we'd expected at all. Uh, so when we started, when we arrived, we kind of thought we might get an orientation in how the church functions and what the strategy and pathways were. We thought we might find out about pathways to ministry and leadership and, and start thinking about our role in the community. Uh, but instead what we received was wine and cheese and beer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we went walking in Mount Field, and we danced at jazz venues, uh, and we did that for quite a few months. But after about three, four months, I remember uh, kind of having a conversation with Darren, and I said, um, hey, look, this has been really great so far, but when can we sit down and have a chat about how the church works and, you know, about the strategy and structure and formation pathways and evangelism? I don't know, all the stuff that you guys must think about. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you just hang out and drink beer, and maybe we'll have a chat in a year. <laughs> now, for me, as, as like a type A strategic thinker and a planner, someone who'd moved halfway across the world to learn about church planting and learn about this group of people, uh, it was not the answer I was necessarily expecting, you know, hang out and drink beer for a year. But, uh, you know, I don't really like alcohol much, to be honest, and I'm not really a pub person, so <laughs> it was a spiritual discipline to turn up three times a week and drink with strangers. But God had called us here, so that's what we did. We, we, um, we drank as a spiritual discipline. Uh, we, we turned up and hung out with the community. We watched and we learned, and, and interestingly, God did form us in quite a strange and surprising way during this time. See, Darren wasn't trying to be difficult, uh, 
he, he wanted us to build relationships in the local community and to get to know the people. He wanted us to learn the patterns and the rhythms of the group at the time. He wanted us to understand Hobartian culture, to look at the place with missionary eyes and to understand who Tasmanians were and what it meant to be a Taswegian. Uh, and, and he wanted us to detox from religion and to take away some of the assumptions that we had past held dearly and actually learn to see church in a brand new way. Uh, so that one year actually became five years before we ever had those conversations. <laughs> we did a lot of drinking, a lot of dancing, uh, and spent a lot of time building relationships with unchurched people. And that was great. And it was a bit like family. Uh, and I have very fond memories of that time. Uh, now, I don't see eye to eye with everything that the community necessarily did in full. Uh, and yet, at the same time, what I did experience, and I think this is what Darren wanted us to experience, I experienced church as a people on a mission. I learned to experience church without singing, without sermons, without uh, you know, the Sunday service structures. I learned to see that um, a lot of the stuff that we confuse to be church isn't actually church at all, and that church is the people of God, the ecclesia, who meet together in his name to serve and love and transform society. And I also learned that discipleship is not something that happens just on Sundays. I mean, every pastor will say, will say that. But it's quite different spending five years not having it to see if you really get it or if you don't. Do you follow? And, uh, and, and I suppose I learned that church and discipleship can happen on the road, organically, in everyday life, uh, in quite a remarkable way. Now, interestingly, since that time, I've, I've fallen back in love with religious gatherings. I, I've, we discovered as a community that there were things that were missing by having no structured gatherings. You know, I've fallen in love with, with prayer and sermons and worship and singing and all the things that we had kind of missed in some ways. Uh, and yet, as much as I value these things, uh, religious spaces are not discipleship. You know, th these gatherings are part, a very important part, I believe, of religious formation, of, of being formed as disciples or apprentices of Jesus, which is what we're talking about at the moment. Uh, and yet the rest is loving God as a people of God in everyday life, uh, in, in the run and, and kind of mess of, of community. And, and so today's talk is actually about that. It's actually about life on life, discipleship. What does it mean to to uh, disciple the way that Jesus discipled on the road in everyday life in an organic, relational, uh, unstructured way. And we're going to talk about the value of structured gatherings like this, but also the value of doing life on life on the road together in an unstructured, somewhat unreligious way, because both of those components are absolutely necessary to form people in the likeness of Christ and to be disciples. Do you follow? Okay. Uh, and so it's part of a series called A Life Well Lived, and we're talking about life and discipleship and how to live well in the ways of Jesus. And it's based on John 10.10, 10, where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And what we've been talking about is that if we want to experience abundant life, then we are going to need to walk in the pattern of Jesus. Because as we learn to walk like he walked, as we learn to, to pattern our lives on his patterns, not just his teachings, but the way he lived, then we will become more like Jesus and experience Christ-likeness in ourselves, which is actually discipleship, to be a mathetes, a learner, or an apprentice of Jesus. 
Uh, so there are a number of principles that we've been discussing to be an apprentice of Jesus, and this is the how box. I won't go through this in detail because we've described it before, but uh, we've talked about dying to self, the principle of learning through imitation, the principle of hearing and obeying the voice of God through kairos moments, and the principle of balancing our spiritual journey uh, individually and collectively through up, in, and out to be in balance. And we've also talked... I talked last fortnight about invitation and challenge and what it means to calibrate invitation and challenge to make disciples. And so today I'm going to talk about our second to last principle in this series, which is organic and structured rhythms, how to uh, make disciples on the road. So I love Dallas Willard's stuff. He's a fantastic author and he writes some great stuff on discipleship. And Dallas Willard, in the spirit of the discipline, says this. He says, For at least several decades, the church of the Western world has not made discipleship a condition for being a Christian. Strong words. He says, One is not required to be or intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian, and one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress at all towards discipleship. And I think this is absolutely true. What he's saying is we have accepted a false expression of Christianity in the West that removes the life and the teachings of Jesus from our own religion. And we have sold people a lie that if you believe in Jesus in your mind, then you will experience a transformed life. And it's not true. Now, it's true, it is true that we will experience eternal life. We are saved by faith and not works. We are saved when we believe in Jesus in our mind and we love him in our heart. The scriptures say that, okay? But it doesn't lead to a transformed life in this world because something else is absolutely required. We are not saved by our good works, but unless we take those beliefs and that mindset and transform it into habits and patterns and practices that allow us to become more like Christ, then we won't experience abundant life in this world and we won't become like Him. Do you follow? There's a difference between salvation and eternal life and actually discipleship where we walk in His footsteps and we become like Jesus. And we cannot, uh, we cannot minimize that. And so... Some people say that all you need to do to make a disciple is to go to church and read the Bible or a variety of those kind of, of expressions. And I think those spiritual formation pathways, those disciplines, those practices are absolutely central. We found in third place communities, we threw so much away that people stopped loving Jesus. So you need those practices. And yet at the same time, more than religious, uh, more than religious meetings uh, to form people in the habits of Christ, we need communities of faith. Communities where you can observe other people and imitate those around you. Communities where we can spur each other on into the spiritual practices and the spiritual disciplines and where we can learn to walk as Jesus walked as disciples. So, let's go to Jesus, who is the founder of our faith. We must not walk away or have a faith without Jesus. In fact, uh, in the words of Alan Hirsch, who you saw before, who we had a great conversation with last week, uh, he, he says that we need to read Jesus. The church needs to read Jesus, which means we have to put Jesus back at the center of our own faith. And in order to do that, we need to look at how Jesus made disciples. And so that's the question I want to answer today. How did Jesus make disciples? And if you look at the Gospels, uh, it's quite amazing how he did it. 
when we look at the way Jesus did things, he did things in a surprisingly unconventional way. Uh, he was quite unreligious, and it's quite surprising. He was quite unevangelical in the way that we understand evangelicalism today. You know, he was unconventional. And yet, if we're going to form people in his likeness, we need to not just copy his words, but we need to copy the way he made disciples himself. He discipled people in life on the road, and that's what we're going to talk about. So, let me open the scriptures and have a look. I'm going to look at two scriptures, uh, but, but you'll see the way I'm reading the scriptures will allow you to read the whole gospel narrative in the same way. I remember coming to third place communities, and it was the first time I thought, you're reading the gospel as if we should do the things the way Jesus did them. I've always learned his words and talked about his teachings, but I'd never really looked at his patterns, the way in which he made disciples and realized that we should copy them. Does that make sense? Okay, so Mark 2, 23 to 38. Uh, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They picked some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, last year I preached on this verse in a lot of detail, and I I spent a lot of time talking about Sabbath and the patterns of rest. So I'm not actually going to talk about that today. What I want to focus on is the way in which Jesus discipled his disciples. Uh, You see, Jesus is hanging out with his friends on a Saturday, which is Sabbath for the Jewish religious community. Uh, And and they're enjoying sunshine. I imagine it's a bit like today. They're walking through the fields, uh, just talking, picking grain and and munching away because they're a bit hungry. Uh, and, And then there's religious guys who see Jesus and his friends pulling out grain get all kind of snooty because uh, they're very religious, they have lots of rules and regulations, and actually picking grain on the Sabbath is considered to be work, and so they start to challenge Jesus. And as a result of that exchange, the disciples learn something not only about Sabbath, but also something about who Jesus is, and maybe something about what the religion of the time was about as well. So if outside of the actual context of what we learn, what we see in the pattern of Jesus is that there was life-on-life relationship, they were doing life together, walking in the field, just hanging out together. Uh, There was an everyday event, maybe a God-inspired interaction. And as a result of that, they learned something. Does that make sense? It wasn't going to a service. It wasn't going to a meeting. They were just walking through the field, and Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God in the moment. Life-on-life relationship, an everyday event, and God-inspired learning, pretty critical for discipleship. Do you see that? All right, let's pick another one. John, Gospel of John, chapter 9, 1 to 3. So as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. It's the same idea, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty much the same idea. Jesus is walking along with his posse of friends and then suddenly he sees this blind man and and his disciples, his apprentices, ask him a theological question about the meaning of this sickness and this disability. Uh, They're basically saying, why is this man blind? You know, at the time, the, the Jewish religious leaders taught that if you were blind, 
if you were lame or if you were disabled, it was because of a consequence of sin. So either, either you had sinned or that your parents had sinned or somewhere in your lineage there had been sinned. So it was really a, it was a punishment from God. It's quite a different way of looking at disability, isn't it? And, uh, and, and this is very similar, actually, in Asian cultures today uh, that believe in karma. You know, we love karma in the West. Everyone loves karma. Uh, and yet karma in practice means that if you're sick or poor, it's because you were bad in your past life. It has massive consequences on social structures in society uh, and the way in which we view people who are broken. We should consider that, and we see it in Eastern cultures. But anyway, that's off the topic. Um, Jesus, Jesus is, is, is just walking through, and, uh, and he sees a blind man, and, and in this interaction, he says that it's not because of the sin of the man, it's not because of the sin of the parents. It's, it, this person is going to be glorified and honoured as a result of his blindness. He, he kind of flips it around and honours this blind man and, and elevates him. Uh, so even outside of the theological kind of concept of this, what we see is the same thing, don't we, yeah? Jesus and his disciples are just getting on with life on the road. There's an event. They see a blind person. The disciples are curious. They see the rabbi as a teacher, so they ask him a question, just like my kids ask me questions as I drive them around. And then there's theological discussion and training and formation just in the everyday happening of life. And if you look at the way Jesus makes disciples, it is almost all like that. Yes, he preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, he stands on a boat and teaches people formally. But for his disciples, it's almost all just going through ordinary life, people asking questions and interpreting the world in different ways. Can you see that? Uh, Like Jesus calms the storm. They're hanging out in a boat. Jesus is having a nap. There's a massive storm. And then all of a sudden, Jesus teaches his disciples about trust, about who he is, about different aspects of the creation. Uh, There's an experience where uh, Jesus is feeding 5,000 people. And what's amazing about this miracle is that it happens through the hands of the disciples. You know, basically, people, the, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, we've got 5,000 people, we can't feed them, send them home. <laughs> There's no McDonald's around here. And then, and then Jesus says, well, you feed them, what do you have? And they just pull out the bread and the loaves, and, and they see a miracle through their hands. How cool is that? Like, what a learning experience. You know, again, it's on the road. It's not in a religious building. Uh, Peter washes, Jesus washes Peter's feet and, and teaches something about service, Uh, about his death, about what it means to be a disciple. You see it again and again and again. So, Jesus made disciples in a very wonderful, amazing, unreligious, extraordinary way. He was like the religious teacher that religious people didn't like, but tax collectors and prostitutes and and all the broken people seemed to flock to him. That alone was amazing. Uh, he hung out with the wrong people. He was accused of eating too much and drinking too much. You know, he bent down and doodled in the sand in order to stop a riotous mob. Like, it just, it, he, he took on people in the everyday of life, and it was amazing. And yet, it wasn't necessarily in structured ways like we train people today. And because of how unconventional a Messiah he was, we need to take seriously the way in which he discipled people and then think about how we might model discipleship in the same way in our own very different context. We want to copy his patterns and disciple people in homes, in workplaces, uh, in parks, 
in jazz venues. We want to be able to be a community who intentionally orientates our life around patterns and rhythms so that we can disciple on the road. This stuff is important. I believe in public proclamation and teaching, uh, and at the same time, we need to complement the structured stuff with the organic stuff. Otherwise, we'll never really see mature disciples who become like Jesus. So let's pause for a minute, and I want you to reflect the introvert moment where I get to have a drink as well. Uh, An introvert moment. Have you ever been apprenticed in your faith? It's just an interesting question. When we look at the way Jesus apprenticed people. And how much has life-on-life observation, interaction, etc. played a role in your learning? Just have a minute and just listen to the Spirit of God. So if we want to make disciples in the way that Jesus made disciples, we need to address both structured and organic elements of disciple-making. One without the other doesn't work. Uh, and if you think about a typical apprenticeship, this is where I love, I love the interpretation of Mathetes or disciple as apprentice of Jesus. Because if you think about an apprenticeship, uh, they have structured and organic components of every single apprenticeship. You have, you, have your, uh, ex- you have your structured learning, like at TAFE, and then you have your experiential practice where you're just hanging out for hours and hours and hours in a workplace, copying, practicing, uh, putting skills into practice, asking questions until you can learn to be like your, um, I don't know, apprentice person. What are they called? Mentor, guru, sensei, yeah, whatever. We get it. All right. So, so in Together Church, we try to intentionally have uh, discipleship structures which move from structured to organic to cover different aspects of life. So I'll go through very quickly. This is quite clearly our most structured format. You know, there's preaching, there's teaching, there's services, uh, there's a rhythm. Uh, we, we find that this is really important, a public service for community, for a sense of togetherness. It's really good for visitors and new people coming through. It's, great, it's a great place for unity. It's a great place to pass on the vision of the community in order to, to give people an imagination of a different type of church. Uh, and it's great to impart some Bible knowledge and to help us to sing and worship together communally. Like, that these gatherings are really important. And I think increasingly in a secular world, we need to encourage each other to be committed to turn up regularly because that's how we kind of grow in this aspect of our community life. The next is Little Church. Uh, and I would say huddle and 411 and, and different types of training that we run, they're kind of, they are structured, but they're a lot less structured. Uh, different, different little churches which are in homes or schools are more or less structured depending on where they are and who they're trying to reach. But again, they're more organic. They're a bit more like a family setting, but we still have some teaching through dialogue and some singing and, and things like that. So it's on the structured end, but it's moving towards organic. Uh, then we move to... I can't remember what we've got here. Uh, we move through like to prayer and, and to hope groups and discovery Bible study groups. So those are small groups where we're praying, we're talking, we're, we're building accountability with each other to spur each other on into disciple making. Uh, then we move to the kind of social side of things, which is much, much more organic uh, and they're much more rhythmic. So for example, big, big fire, we have fire pit uh, in stones once a month and, and the neighbours come together and we, we eat and we cook and we talk, maybe pull out a guitar at the end of the night after eating some spuds. 
you know, there's other kind of organic rhythms. So uh, catching up for meals together or, or just hanging out at the same time in the same place in social spaces uh, or even WhatsApp groups where we connect particular communities together and, and invest in relationship. And then obviously on the other end is just everyday friendship. But we deliberately try not to fill people's lives up with too many of these gatherings so there is some space in life to invest in friendship and mission and discipleship. Uh, and so again, uh, when you look at that stuff, you've got to ask the question, well, how do you do it? Because this is where I've really wrestled with it because you look at the way Jesus made disciples and he took 12 people on the road for three years. Uh, they left their jobs and they did absolutely everything with him. Like they, they, they stayed at his house, they ate at his table, they watched him work and preach and teach and then they went and did the same. Like that is the best discipleship because you're imitating. But we can't really do that generally. I mean, a group like Cornerstone is a great example where they do actually have a formation year. And for young people in particular, you leave your place, you leave your home, you live in community and you pray, you work, you learn, and you, be a, you are apprenticed in a live-in community. So that's an example of the Bendigo community and, and other Cornerstone communities that we saw. Uh, one thing that we've done, which is again a fairly high commitment, but we've had flatmates for most of our married life. We haven't over the last few years because we're running out of room. But, uh, but we've had flatmates, and so flatmates are a great way to have someone live with you, spend time with you, eat at your table, pray with you, see how you parent. It's a massive challenge for you as a disciple of Jesus because you realize that your life has to be worth imitating in all of your life. So they get to see uh, us make a fight, and they get to see us apologize. You know, like we're not perfect, but they get to see us seeking to live out Christ-likeness in everyday life. Uh, but for the majority of people, it's really hard to imagine life-on-life discipleship as part of the busyness of everyday life, isn't it? It's really tough. Like, we have busy jobs, busy lives, and in, in an individual world, we just don't rub shoulders with each other that much unless we really try. And so this is where I see the value in rhythms in order to intentionally create patterns and rhythms where people can be discipled and connect with each other. So I'll be short on this, but a few of the examples of rhythms that I've used over the time uh, that I've been in Tassie or that I've seen work really well uh, are um, regular patterns where you, people can get involved in those patterns on a regular basis and simply then connect with you life on life. Uh, one of them, for example, is weekly meals. They work really well. You know, even if it's a fortnightly meal where a bunch of people know that they can turn up and they can bring food, and they just do it again and again and again. If you eat fortnightly with someone for six months, it's amazing the depth of relationship. It's amazing what they'll observe. It's amazing the kind of questions that can come up. Does that make sense? We, we actually call it communion if you really look at it biblically. Uh, another example uh, that I remember was Kylie a while ago. We heard, we heard from someone that um, you, in our busy lives, particularly in the busiest times of our life, it's almost impossible to just keep... You don't want to just keep adding new stuff on because you just get exhausted. But what if you could find patterns or rhythms that you currently do anyway, but then think about them from a disciple-making point of view? And so Kai, for a while, was trying to catch up with someone, found it really hard. So they said, well, I go shopping for my supermarket stuff every week. They do as well. Why don't we do it together? We'll talk, we'll walk through the supermarket shopping aisles. Uh, now, it wasn't amazing discipleship, but it was another touch base in the week. It was a way to connect. It was a way to talk. And sometimes it ended up being a coffee at the end. Do you follow? It wasn't necessarily more time, but they got to do it in a discipleship type of way. 
Uh, other examples are family movie night. You know, we've had times where we had a family movie night at the same time on a Friday night uh, before our life changed, and there's youth group and other things on now. But uh, we had a few people where we said, if you want to join us, if you're feeling lonely or you want to be with family, just turn up and be part of family movie night. You know, you watch Frozen 2 and we'll eat popcorn together. But they do get to experience community. They get to see what family life is like. You know, you go to someone's house and you suddenly know who they are. Like, you can know them in the workplace for, for like five years, but it's not until you walk into their home that you really get a sense of what they value and, and who they are and how organized their life is. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's nothing like just allowing people to be part of your life and, and, uh, and trusting that Jesus will use that. Uh, shared prayer. Uh, walking with kids is another one. I used to go walking every fortnight up to Mount Nelson, pushing my pram when the kids were young, and another person did as well. And we did that for like three years. It's just a great way to actually talk and pray and think. Uh, shared exercise is another one. So, so think about the rhythms that you currently have and think how can we add a sense of disciple-making into them. Uh, so if you're a structured person, this is an example of what our rhythms looked like pre-COVID. Uh, COVID kind of threw everything up in the air and my rhythms are all over the place. In fact, my rhythms basically are just make it up as it goes along right now. But um, we will re-kickstart rhythms as a community fairly soon. Uh, but it used to involve uh, weekly rhythms of eating together uh, and praying together. It used to involve fortnightly rhythms. Uh, what have we got here? Of hanging out with the kids. With monthly rhythms of having, uh, let's say, um, chopping food together. And so, so when you look at a, the calendar overall, these patterns don't have to take up a lot of time. Like, it's not like I'm saying to, to have organic life on life discipleship, you need to kind of blow your entire calendar out of the water. Uh, but the key is to have some intentional patterns where you're inviting particular people into your life to watch you, to copy you, and to become more like you. Uh, so, yep. So, to finish... Uh, I, I, I want to finish on a challenging note because in, my, in many ways the idea of life-on-life life discipleship is really, it, it sounds really great in theory. Do you agree? Hang out together, drink at the pub and get to know each other and somehow they'll become like Jesus. But, but in practice it, takes, it actually takes quite a lot of energy and, and intentionality. It, it's actually quite hard work. And I want to finish with this quick scripture and then we'll have communion. Uh, Jesus says this, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. And we talked about invitation and challenge last fortnight. I really love this passage. It's pretty challenging I mean, what I read is that Jesus is saying there's a lot of people who will start the discipleship journey because they get excited, but then they run out of money or steam or energy and give up. And, and it's absolutely real. It's true. We've seen it again and again. Jesus teaches this again and again. There is a high cost to becoming an apprentice of Jesus. A low cost to believing him, a high cost to becoming like him. And in many ways, it's very inviting to say, I'm going to invite you into my life. I'm going to invite you to share my table, to hang out with my family, 
to eat my food, to enter my life. I mean, who doesn't want that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> like, it's very inviting if you're a disciple and someone's inviting you in. But as a disciple maker, the cost is pretty clear, isn't it? Like, none of that is easy. And so we want to consider first, uh, are we up for it? And also, who are we going to invite into our life? Because I'm not saying that we invite every person into our life and open our door for every person who walks into the church. That's totally unsustainable. And you don't see that in the life of Jesus. He picked particular people. So when I invite people into my, I suppose, inner circle where I'm intentionally investing in them as a disciple maker for a season, I'm actually looking for, what's the word mathetes mean again? Learners. I'm looking for learners because that is what disciple means. I'm looking for people who are willing to, to see me as a spiritual parent for this season and who, are, who might honour me in that. I'm looking for people who will ask questions. You know, Jesus asked, you see that, the disciples asked the teacher questions. I want people who are hungry to learn. Will they ask me questions about faith uh, and, and about life? And will they observe my life and then be proactive in growing into the likeness of Jesus by putting those things that they learn into practice? I'm not wanting to just find someone who likes to talk about ideas. I want to see someone who will both serve and then put it into practice and then pay it forward as a disciple maker. And we want to see that. I'm not saying that people need to be mature at all in their faith. I love people who are brand new in their faith. Uh, they're sometimes the best learners, but, but I want to see people who have a heart to learn and grow. Does that make sense? Because a lot of people actually don't. They're really comfortable with their faith and they're not that hungry. I'm looking for people who don't just talk, but who will serve and give and who respond by allowing themselves to be changed. So, so in other words, what I'm, what I'm looking for personally when I'm inviting someone into my family is uh, I'll invest in you significantly if you want to invest in yourself. I say to my kids, I will help you with that difficult thing. You know, help me, mum. Help me, dad. You know, I will help you with that thing, that challenging task. But I often say to my kids, but I won't help you more than you'll help yourself. If you don't start, I'm not going to start it for you. You know what I mean? And I think it's the same with disciple making. You know, I'm, I want to pour my life into investing in people, and I know you, as, you do as well. But if we're going to do it, we want to find people who are more willing to invest in their own walk with Jesus than we are. I'll help you, but not more than you'll help yourself. I think it's a great principle. But it sounds harsh, and that's not my intention to sound harsh. My intention is to invest in people who want to be invested in because there's only so much time and energy we have. And I think it's beautiful to do that. And the last thing is if you want to be a disciple, because I'm a disciple as well, there's uh, a cost as well because it takes, a, you know, when I, when I find a person, I'm constantly trying to find people who are ahead of me in my spiritual journey. They're ahead of me in preaching. They're ahead of me in evangelism. They're ahead of me. They're just a better dad than I am or maybe just a better person, a uh, better sense of humor although that would be hard, but a better sense of humor, all right? And, and so how do you, how do I kind of, how do I sit under them and learn from them as a disciple? So, you know, when I'm trying to find someone, well, I'll actually ask them. Uh, you think about an apprentice. Whose responsibility is it to ask to be apprenticed? It's the, the person who's going to learn, isn't it? Whose responsibility is it to chase it up? to, to honour the person who's, who's training them, to ask questions and to put it into practice. Whose responsibility is it to, to learn the skills and, to, and to, to put their hand to the plough and to give it a go? Is it my responsibility to say, how come you're not turning up to the thing that you want to grow in? No. Like, if you want to be an apprentice, you turn up. 
and then I'll make space. Does that make sense? I'm not going to call you and say you haven't turned up again. Like, that's your job. So in, the many, in many ways, what I'm saying is it's tough to be a disciple as well because disciples need to want Jesus and to want to grow to become like Jesus. But if we can be a community who, who offer apprenticeships uh, in the organic everydayness of life, who open up rhythms and patterns where people can get involved, and if we can invite younger people or new people to the faith to become like us uh, because we love Jesus with our whole heart, then we will be a learning community, a discipleship community, a community of apprentices. So, so this is my last question. Uh, this is one of the best parties we've had at our house, uh, or at least the best photo of the best party. <laughs> what is Jesus' invitation for you today? And what is Jesus' challenge for you today? Please reflect on that. Listen to the Spirit of God, and then we're going to have communion. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed this talk, follow us on Podbean or iTunes or connect with us through Facebook and Instagram at Together Church Hobart.